The Lord be with you. One of the most influential television shows at the tail end of the first golden age of TV was a sitcom called Gilligan's Island. It was about the cast of unlikely characters shipwrecked together in the tropics. For the youngsters in the room, just uh, picture the great-great-great-grandfather of all of those goofy shows that are on Nickelodeon and Disney, but with really bad set design, a clumsy laugh track, and lots of super corny slapstick humor. A little bit of mild sexual innuendo, too. And way too many bad jokes about coconuts. Even still, the show was a cultural landmark. I remember I'd only ever seen the show in rerun form, but in 1981 they did a special episode with... Anyone else see that? The Harlem Globetrotters. I was super excited. There were supposed to be two more Gilligan's Islands, and they, they didn't do them. It was not a success. From the start, though, when that show was a hit, a big part of the success of Gilligan's Island rested on the writer's use of some really classic storytelling elements, timeless characters and themes. This is a story about a group of people from wildly different backgrounds on a fateful trip, fearing for their lives on a boat and facing a terrible storm and surviving together which is really nothing new as stories go. You can probably think of a whole bunch of stories like that. To name a few, there's the old, old one, the the Odyssey, and then Shakespeare threw in with The Tempest. You've got Moby Dick, and of course, who can forget Baywatch? (laughs) These stories have a clarifying effect. The chaos and danger of nature and fate blowing in and stripping away the privileges and the comforts and the titles and the ranking systems and the values of civilization. Week after week, the formula of Gilligan's Island worked because despite their very best efforts, the shipwrecked passengers of the SS Minnow never get rescued. These characters were held in a perpetual state of distress, acting out their same exaggerated parts week after week, like the wealthy snobs who couldn't see the value of the things that lay right in front of them, or the sexy Hollywood starlet who was trying to navigate a world without the brightness of the spotlight or the attention of the paparazzi, without her agent or any of her adoring fans. What do we have left when the storm proves that our ship's captain is not brave and true? When the first mate is not a mighty sailing man, like he said, this isn't going to be a three-hour tour. You've lost your, your ride the comfort of your hometown, your wealth, or your fame. Even in sitcom format, that's pretty real. No matter how many ways it's told, there's a timelessness to these stories. These life got 
turned all upside down stories. When you strip away all the pretense and the vanity, we breathe the same air and our blood pulses with the same fluids and minerals and we hunger and we thirst and we walk the same earth and we all have someone or something to lose when the storms and the calamities crash in on us. Today's passage from Acts is one of those ocean stories with plenty of stormy action and commotion. It's Paul's final journey to Rome. It suggests to us that even in the crisis and in the chaos, when the way ahead is murky with fear and uncertainty all around us, the God of creation is with us. And in the midst of the tempest, we, the people of the church, are called to speak words of hope in the midst of it all. We've known for some chapters now that Paul's trip to Rome has ominous overtones. What did he expect in a meeting with imperial Rome? And if history tells us anything, this does not end well for Paul. But Paul's story isn't over yet. And even as the remaining chapters of Acts play out, Paul continues to live on with this same practice embodying his calling, as he so often named it in the start of his letters, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Wherever he ended up, Paul would carry himself with such purpose, speaking with boldness and courage. Even here in chapter 27, a prisoner in transport, Man in custody? He was so much more than just another faceless inmate. So, leaving the coastal city of Caesarea Maritima, Paul the prisoner would take a wild ride across the Mediterranean Sea. If you're a sailor or a nautical buff, this chapter has so many little tidbits of jargon about trade winds and seasonal storms and ropes and sea anchors and headings and Depth sounding, this is, this is really a story for you. Acts tells us that the ship had its own cast of characters drawn together for this voyage. For a start, there's a captain and his crew of scallywags who just wanted to make a living. They wanted to turn a profit and get that ship home safe to their port. How many tons of Egyptian grain were in their hold. How anxious was the captain to see that cargo safely in port? Were these goods insured? Who's financing this trip? Someone's going to pay. The Roman muscle on board was a group of soldiers and their sergeant named Julius, a centurion in the Augustan cohort, no less. He's a military man, some standing who's given his life to duty and service in a brutal regime with the hope that maybe someday he might make it to retirement in one piece, hopefully even with some shreds of his soul intact. 
And that doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of how many varieties of cramped and seasick passengers were on that ship. We're told that there were 267 souls on board. People who just wanted to get from point A to point B, or anxious to land at point B. What dreams and troubles have they had? These passengers must have been especially desperate because they continued to take passage on a ship after the fall equinox. It's the time of year when the Mediterranean was known to be especially treacherous. Stay off the seas at that time of year. This was a gamble. This was a risky trip. A bad time to be on the water. What were they all thinking? What were they so keen to get away from? Who were they hoping to be reunited with? Of course, the ship carried Paul, some of his friends, and all those other prisoners, the the dangerous cargo headed for imperial justice. And as the story tells us, Paul seemed to charm some of the people, at least the centurion who treated him well. This charismatic apostle wasn't just another typical prisoner. These days at sea began tense but hopeful. And as, it's, as the vessel made its way from the first ports of call and out into open waters, the, alas, the moderate winds gave away to the worst-case scenario, the dreaded northeaster, a famous bit of bad weather and a violent storm that began to batter their ship. The ship's crew did everything they could. They braced the ship with ropes. They pulled in the lifeboat. They tried to hold the thing together, dragging sea anchors for stability, furiously battling the sea. The next day, the crew threw all the luggage overboard. The sailors then, the day after that, Jettisoned the ship's rigging and gear as the storm raged on? How are they going to steer this thing? The text tells us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. This was a clarifying moment. What more was there to say? To a ship whose passengers and crew had lost all hope? People who'd watched their luggage sink into the sea. Sailors who'd abandoned the pretense of steering and sailing the ship. So Paul stood and spoke. He starts with some obnoxious, I told you so, about such risky sailing against his better judgment. Thank you very much, Paul. But then he gets to a rousing call to courage a little bit of insider info about a visit from an angel. This prisoner had been assured by his God that this journey would not end at the bottom of the sea. He tells them, I'm going to make it to Rome, but before then we're going to crash on an island, but don't worry, you're all coming with me. So the ship floated on. Finally coming to shallower waters and the hope of some land. They're nearing Malta. And that's when those sailors, those scallywags, those scurvy dogs made their move. 
in one last embarrassing failure of duty, the deckhands made a big fuss like they were lowering anchors. But they were secretly making ready the lifeboat for a quick and dirty escape. Those bumps. They can't have been too subtle about it because Paul alerted his centurion friend to the ruse and he tells them, we're all in this together, man. All of us. So the soldiers muscle past these humiliated crewmen, drawing their blades, and they, they cut the lifeboat free. Imagine that. Another clarifying moment for everyone on board as the lifeboat drifted away in the distance. Fourteen days they'd been in this state of distress, fearing for their lives, praying to their gods, making all kinds of crazy deals, I'm sure. None of them were eating. Maybe it's anxiety. Maybe it's seasickness, penitence, despair, all of the above. Whatever reasons, these were hungry people. And so Paul gave them another encouraging speech. Take some food, friends. Sustain yourselves for the days that are to come. Eat like you have hope to live another day. And then Paul took bread, and he thanked his creator for it, and he broke it, and he began to eat. And in that moment, bread was more than food, so much more. It was comfort in the moment. It was sustenance for another day. That bread was hope. The apostle stood on the deck of a boat, stripped down to its bare boards and listing, held together with frayed ropes and mercy and luck, breaking bread, giving thanks, speaking words of hope. He did this in the company of wearied soldiers and humiliated sailors and desperate civilians. And the people ate with full stomachs and a new lease on life. They made a final effort to lighten the ship. And this is the crazy part. They finally throw that wealth of grain that was in the holdout. They throw the wheat into the sea at last. Amazing that they hadn't done this earlier. What were the financial pressures they were living with? Soldier. Sailor, merchant, passenger, all of them would arrive ashore empty-handed, but profoundly grateful to witness a new day. This sea voyage of Paul is a clarifying story for us, the church, too. It is our calling at its most plain. Because even now, now and always, with Paul on those shaky deck boards, the church is called to stand in the midst of even the most anxious crowd. 
We are all passengers on this little wandering planet, an exquisite speck of damp rock hurtling through the darkness of space. And we are all in the same boat. We breathe the same thin blanket of air. We hunger and thirst all the same. We walk the same earth and the northeastern winds crash in on all of us. This is a perilous journey, this life we share. And it's pretty clear that we are not always in good hands. So many dishonest managers and bad actors and selfish characters mark our way. But even still, the church remains with that same apostle's call, naming the very same hope. It's the hope that the Lord of storms, the spirit of life, the recreator who makes life out of chaos, has not forgotten us, even as the winds howl. And so, we are the church. We will speak up with wisdom and thoughtfulness and care. We will name injustice and cruelty and stand against it when we see it. Surrounded by the voices of the fearful and the desperate, we will offer words of hope. We will share our lives and shape our lives with that same hope. And with thanksgiving and the breaking of bread, we will take and share it with our fellow passengers. Friends, this, this is our whole story. This is our vocation. This is our calling. This is what we do. Amen.